0: of January 29th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 605, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines in the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, this is Jay Sperling-Reich. Was that the entertainment world? What was that? You know what? (laughs) This is me so frustrated that last week Mm -hmm. we recorded an entire episode
1: it and this is Michael Giltz from the Twilight Zone. Meet Michael Giltz, a man who recorded an episode that disappeared.
0: <laughs> from Sundance. I mean, you always fault me for not recording while I'm traveling. And I made time out. I carved time out. We recorded a whole episode. Right, right after
1: the us. Oscar nominations were announced. We like totally
0: had this thing down. We were like, yes, we did it. We, and then we like listened to the audio and guess what? You know, uh, Ski Town, not known for their Wi-Fi.
1: <laughs> Sperling's voice sounded like crap and it was unsalvageable. So that special episode that only lasted 57 minutes, um, <laughs> that, that did not... That did not make it. So that's why we didn't have that. We'll
0: just we'll just add that 57 minutes onto the nine and a half hours. We're going to do this week Mm -hmm. and
1: we'll have a nice 10 hour, you know, little interlude. (laughs) That'll be nice. That'll be nice. So uh, that, you know, that's why we weren't there last week. We missed out, but um, you're doing all right. And what are we going to talk about this week?
0: Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we hope you can hear us clearly, actually, because, you know, of the audio, the audio on last week's Oscar Quickie was, well, as Michael used to call it uh, bad, I'll call it dreadful. But we've got a lot to talk about, so listen up. First, the Chinese New Year set off fireworks at the box office. Some people call it the Lunar New Year. Some people call it the Spring Festival. Either way, China made a lot of money and India had a lot to celebrate with the worldwide success of their new movie, Pathan, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, We love it when our box office talk goes international. So it's better for the business to have strong films all over the world. That's what we really need. Sundance announced its winners over the weekend, while the Razzies had some apologizing to do. It's all part of award season madness. But will the Sundance movies that were picked up by streamers over the past, what, 11 or 12 days disappear without a theatrical run? Nielsen, on the other hand, announced the biggest streaming properties of the year. And someone is watching a lot of TV. Michael, turn it off.
1: It's me turn it
0: off. Also HBO's the last of Us just keeps getting bigger and bigger. I mean I, don't, I must air on a Sunday because oh my gosh, Twitter was just full of last of us like yesterday night was all last of us. on inside baseball, we have more streaming to discuss, namely Amazon music raising its prices really peacock hitting a subscriber milestone ooh and if netflix surprising wall street yet again although this time not necessarily with its subscriber count of course during big deal or big whoop we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines but first as always we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire michael giltz
1: to fill us in on last week's box office that's right we're looking at box office around the world we have a link to ComScore in our show notes. I sure wish they would expand their list. They do a top 10 right now. And, um, you know, there's more movies than that playing worldwide. So if they've got more info, share it with us. So, you know. I think the, a part of it is
0: uh, the, the top 10 is only worldwide. They, of course, have a much larger list for domestic. The issue, I think, is how much they're allowed to, uh, to you know, reveal from the studios and from the distributors and their ability to collect it. So, I think that's that's part of it.
1: Yeah, well, there you go. First, we're looking at the worldwide box office for the weekend in January 29th. China is the big story. We have three movies making a ton of money, about six or seven movies doing quite well. We don't know all of their budgets, but based on the type of movies they are, I think they're all doing really well. This was a year where there were a lot of winners but the biggest winner of all, like we predicted last week, is Full River Red a Chinese period mystery directed by Zhang Yimou it's a period mystery comedy I should say. It's an eclectic little movie and it did very, very well at the box office. It was gaining ground last weekend when the movies debuted we could see it was pulling ahead of The Wandering Earth 2, the other big winner. They're both doing great, but last week Full River Red grossed 400 million. It's at $466 million worldwide. And The Wandering Earth 2, a prequel to that massive hit, The Wandering Earth, that grossed $314 million last week. It's now at $383 million worldwide. So they are both big, big hits, and I'm especially looking forward to seeing Full River Red. Uh, Then there's the low-budget, I assume, animated flick, Boonie Bears, Guardian Code. It's the ninth in a series. They're very popular every year. This one seems especially popular. It made $117 million this week. It's at $136 million worldwide. It certainly didn't cost that much to make. And skipping down to the other big Chinese New Year movies, you've got Hidden Blade, a World War II thriller starring Tony Leung. That made another $66 million this week. It's at $86 million in count. There's the Chinese comedy 500 Miles that made almost $30 million this week and it's approaching $50 million. That's a lot of movies that did very well. Going back to the top of the charts, of course, after Full River Red, The Wandering Earth 2, and Boonie Bear's Guardian Code, we have, of course, Avatar, The Way of Water. I believe it's number one in North America for the seventh week in a row. That doesn't happen a lot anymore. Uh, It made $94 million this past week. It's at $2,117,000,000 worldwide. Director James Cameron has now directed three of the four biggest films of all time. Amazing. Then in India, we had some big news, Patan. This is a new film from um, superstar Shah Rukh Khan, who hasn't made a movie in five years. It's a big action flick, as you can tell from the trailer. It opened to about $68 million this week worldwide. That's a very big opening. It's not the biggest of all time. I believe that would be Bahubali The conclusion, that made about $81 million, and earlier this year, KGF Chapter 2, that opened to about $71 million, but it is bigger than RRR, which opened to about $65 million worldwide. And how did I get those numbers? Where could I turn to to find out what these movies had made in past years and what was the biggest opening week? I went to the old show notes for Showbiz Sandbox (laughs) because that was the only easy way. Uh, When I looked online at Wikipedia and elsewhere, uh, they obviously only have opening weekend, but they also even those numbers are hard to find. We cover the whole week because these movies don't always open up on a Thursday night or a Friday. And our show notes are now a record for history. So that's exciting to know. And if you know about a movie we're missing and you see our notes are missing something, tell us so we can put it in.
0: Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. You can uh, find us on Twitter, where our handle is at showbizsandbox. And you can like us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandboxes, where you can find our page.
1: That's right. So, of course, Patan is very good news for the Indian box office, along with RRR scoring an Oscar nomination. Not as many as they hoped for, but they got a good one and they hopefully will win. Uh, Patan is a Bollywood film. It's in the Hindi language, whereas RRR is in the Telugu language. There are different regions of India that have different, you know, cultural impacts in different languages, and those movies are all contributing to the success of the Indian box office. But Bollywood movies have been lagging behind. They really hadn't turned out a new hit in a while. Tamil films were scoring, Telugu films were scoring, and you want everyone to do well. Just like worldwide, you want to see hit films from France and Germany and Spain, as well as the Hollywood studios. And so we're all happy to see Patan score for Bollywood, giving them some bragging rights again. Back to the charts. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, is definitely one of the really good success stories, a word-of-mouth hit if you can say something about a franchise. But it's really been building and building. It made $36 million this week. It's well past tripling its reported budget of $100 million. It's now at $334 million worldwide. It's going to do great in streaming and online sales and all that sort of stuff. So this is a really valuable property for them. So that's cool to see. Gerard Butler is moving along with another action flick. Plane made $25 million this week. It's at $35 million worldwide. The new franchise, Megan, an evil doll flick, made another $21 million. That's about to hit $150 million worldwide. And Tom Hanks is moneying the banks. Now, his movie, A Man Called Otto, cost about $50 million to make. It's only at $71 million worldwide, but it's showing good word of mouth and good legs. It made $16 million this week. It's at $71 million in counting. It needs to double that to get to profitability just from box office alone. But we know people are responding to the film. They're liking it. Tom Hanks brings them out, and then the word of mouth is good. So that bodes well for the long-term success of this movie. No one's gonna lose their shirt over a man called Otto. Babylon is another story. Everybody has slops, and this is one. It grossed $14 million this week in opening up in a big chunk of Europe and other parts of the world. It's at $42 million and counting. But a cheapy franchise, Missing, that is the sequel to Searching, a thriller that takes place you know, on like laptops and telephone screens. It's all about texting and, and tracking things on your apps and things like that. That's where all the thrilling excitement happens. Well, Missing is a low-budget sequel to Searching. It made $9 million this week. It's at $18 million and counting. It only cost about $7 million to make, so everybody's happy. Uh, the Fablemans, the Spielberg film, was hoping to capitalize on big Oscar success. It certainly got the nominations. It's only at $25 million worldwide. Uh, maybe he needs to pass it on to the next generation. David Cronenberg's son, Brandon, he's got a new movie out. It's Infinity Pool. It's shocking. It's outrageous. It's It's upsetting. And it grossed about $3 million worldwide. So At Sundance,
0: they showed Infinity Pool, they showed the NC-17 version, and I guess they're only releasing the R-rated
1: version. Why? Lucky you, lucky you. Uh, James Cameron has three of the four top grossing movies of all time. Avatar The Way of Water looks like it will pass Titanic, but wait! Titanic has a scheduled release on Valentine's Day. The 3D spruced up recent print is getting put back into theaters and they're anticipating it making more money and maybe passing up Avatar The Way of Water again and then they anticipate Avatar The Way of Water will pass it up when all is said and done. So that'll be a fun back and forth as James Cameron tries to top himself. Uh, He's got no one else to top so I guess that's how you do it. But the Chinese New Year, you have a link to a story in Celluloid Junkie in our show notes. It was a really big year at the box office And that bodes well for the worldwide box office, doesn't it?
0: Yes. I mean, they're they're effectively, uh, look, they're trying to reach $9 billion. That's their goal in China.
1: And they year. started that with a be- billion dollars. This Chinese New Year box office hit $993 million, despite the fact that you have some lower ticket prices. Almost all the films were working, so that was great to see. And that means uh, assuming the pandemic doesn't come back to bite you in the ass again, that you know China can be open for box office and when they show those movies and when they welcome more Hollywood films like the new Ant-Man, that's getting a day and date release in China. People will show up at the movies. So um, that's good news for Hollywood. We keep saying, you know what? China should be gravy. You can't depend on the country. They may not show your movie or they may, you know, kneecap it before it gets released. So uh, enjoy what you can make there, but don't cater to the market too much because you can't assume you're going to get access to it. Uh, certainly not right well- now.
0: Well, and okay, so let's look at China for a second and and talk about that, uh, that whole um, kneecapping uh, aspect. You have, um, you mentioned Ant-Man being released there on the 17th of February. Well, 10 days before that, you have uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Wakanda. Forever. Yeah, big deal. Uh, It's, you know, three months after it's released in North America and around the world. And then 10 days later, you have another Marvel movie coming along to cannibalize it. So, Well, I don't think know. it's going
1: to cannibalize it because Black Panther is already played out. Pirated copies are widely available. It's not going to make any money there. I don't know why they even bother. I mean, Disney will obviously say, okay, we'll take the access and play it there. But they're not going to make a big push because, you know, it's too late. It's too late to make money at the Chinese boxes for that movie. So I don't think they'll cannibalize each other at all. Black Panther Wakanda Forever is not going to do that well. But at North America, you can see Chinese films can play. And I love to see our top 10 filled with movies like Patan, that Indian film is at number five, and the Chinese film The Wandering Earth 2, that's at number 10 on the North American top 10 list. And just outside the top 10 is a concert film, a Fathom Events type thing. It's the Billie Eilish concert, which has played in more than 70 countries. It grossed $1.2 million in North America alone. We have no figures yet from the rest of the world. So when all is said and done, that will certainly be higher grossing and doing better than that. But we, we don't have the numbers yet because a Fathom Events thing is sort of its own beast, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean they they report differently, uh, and of course, Fathom Events is only in the U.S. Then you have other other people around Branded the world. Names, they, yeah, yeah. So Trafalgar Releasing, for instance, will release other movies. So uh, you know it's hard to know what was actually uh, where the film was actually played, whether it was worldwide and when, and yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of not issues, but uh, obstacles to collecting no. those
1: grosses. Other movies hoping to capitalize on the Oscars, well, everything, everywhere, all at once is mostly played out, but that did go back into theaters. It made about a million dollars. RRR is being released in February in North America. I'm not sure how widely, but I'm actually, if I get a chance, I will go see that in the theater because I missed it the first time around. And smaller movies are really where the action is at this year. The Whale and Women Talking, which is just sort of playing out now, both of them made more than a million dollars and Women Talking in particular was able to capitalize on its Best Picture and Best Screenplay nominations. So that's cool to see. I know people who saw it and they thought it was just terrific. It's certainly an art house film. It's not for everybody, but Sarah Paula is a real talent, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that movie in the theaters.: Some day do you
0: want to talk. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about the Academy Award nominations? Which we did, by the way, last week. Yeah, it's very confusing
1: what's going on here. Uh, I would say let's do Sundance first, the little baby awards, and then we'll get to the Oscars. Uh, A lot of big movies were bought at Sundance. A lot of movies, I should say, scored big deals. Netflix bought a very commercial-looking thriller called Fair Play for about $20 million. Uh, Yeah, but
0: that was—so Fair Play is kind of an erotic— Thrillers, you know, uh, but people say it's not Adrian
1: Lyne. It's a very substantial. It's not just a you know commercial flick. It's got a lot on its mind in terms of uh, sexual politics and people in relationships who work at the same job. They say it's a very substantive, interesting film as well as very potentially commercial.
0: Yeah, I mean, Alden Ehrenreich is in it uh, as the guy who is supposed to get the uh,
1: the no, who thinks he's he's supposed to get the promotion, but his girlfriend gets it instead.
0: Right. Uh, and then, of course, she becomes his boss and it's set in the world of high finance. So there's a lot going on there. It was one of those movies that uh, when I read the description of it before the festival started, I thought, oh, well, that that, that looks prom- that could be promising. That one could be promising. Uh, and yet nobody talked about it before the fest. No talk at all. Cat People. Yes. Cat People, the New Yorker story turned into a turned into a movie that like didn't really work. Everybody was talking about that movie, but not fair play. But in the end, halfway through the movie, I looked around the movie theater, everybody was like glued to the screen. Three quarters of the way through, they're still there. Mm -hmm. And when it ended, I could tell, I was like, okay, this one, seven distributors were, were bidding for this film.
1: And a couple of the other big deals before we circle back to that. Apple bought the movie Flora and Son. That's the latest musical drama, modest, quiet little film by director John Carney. It stars Joseph Gordon Levitt and Eve Hewson, the daughter of Bono. Uh, they bought it for $20 million. I should point out John Carney's biggest theatrical hit is Once, which grossed worldwide. 26 million dollars so that's way out of whack in terms of what he's pulled in in terms of worldwide box office Uh, magnolia bought some a documentary the little richard doc which got great reviews and searchlight bought theater camp a mockumentary a mock documentary starring ben platt about of course kids going to theater camp they paid eight million dollars for that one and there was a lot of angst over all of this uh, the lot of angst people said oh my god these movies pot up by apple and amazon they'll never be seen again or netflix i should say uh, a- apple and netflix my god fair play should be playing theaters flora and sun should be a heartwarming theatrical movie and now these movies are going to disappear to streaming fair or not
0: uh possibly i mean i think it, you know just like every festival uh, whether it's Cannes or Sundance or Telluride or TIFF or Venice or Berlin. You know, there's the, that, that big hit of the festival that you never hear about again.
1: But <laughs> that's like not be, that's because it just didn't work. You know, Happy Texas got a commercial release. That was a big $10 million purchase. It did not click theatrically. I'm sure there are people who champion the film to this day or something. But- and that
0: was... But to, to give was, you some sense, that was Miramax 1999, $10 million. It was like unheard of at the time right, for a Sundance
1: movie. But that was given its shot, where other people are saying, look, now that Netflix bought Fair Play, a movie that was primed for theatrical exposure that would really benefit the film, they're saying it's going to fall into the black hole of Netflix. Now, it's not like movies on streamers don't become hits, Bird Box and a million other things. I mean, movies become hits on streamers and become part of the cultural conversation. Maybe it's harder for them, or maybe certain movies really would benefit from that commercial release apple put coda into theaters and still one of the critics said you know what coda won best picture apple bought it they put it in theaters but i never hear it talked about there they still feel like it just slipped into a black hole of streaming and that is i had of- to
0: beg people to watch that movie and when mm-hmm. and and i know that because people would still to this day come up and thank me for for making them watch that movie mm-hmm. um but then there's movies like you know this year at sundance there was a movie called rye lane directed by rain Allen miller it's a british film about uh you know some 20-somethings who are getting over they meet and they're getting over their their breakup and they kind of spend a day together and
1: it's a kind of Is a it like a before sunrise movie. type yeah, thing
0: yeah a little bit but, but no a little bit broader than that yeah it's and charming
1: it's more commercial
0: it's way more commercial now. It's getting a, a theatrical release in the United Kingdom. It's owned by Searchlight here. So it's going directly to Hulu. And so that's a shame because that is the kind of film where its fourth week could be better than its first because of the word of mouth.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the word of mouth means it would increase in its streaming though, right? I mean, streaming hits. Well, Netflix potentially, yes. Netflix is bizarrely focused on the opening week and opening month numbers. I don't know why they don't believe in word of mouth hits or things steamrolling into bigger hits. But all they ever tout is the first four weeks success of their stuff. So it's out of the box hits that they champion. Whereas if something builds and builds and takes four or six or eight or ten weeks or a year and suddenly it becomes, you know, a hit. Who cares? Um, but that's that's the game that they play. They don't care about theatrical, and they really care about out-of-the-box hits on streaming. So it seems a little contradictory there, but um, there you go. The, dr- well, the, the awards were announced. There was no big well, consensus. Usually the there's sometimes like a movie that wins best doc and best audience doc, best picture and best audience choice yes. for picture. That didn't happen this year. We had multiple films, a thousand and one won the jury prize and the audience award for a dramatic film was the Persian version. And the same thing happened in documentaries. The jury prize went to going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni project and the audience award was beyond utopia. Does that reflect a year where there were lots of very good films, but no massive consensus around one movie? Pretty much. I
0: mean, it was kind of a, you know, there wasn't anything that you left going, that was just awful. Why was I watching that? Uh, but well, that was pretty were very damn good
1: f- for a festival.
0: <laughs> and there's, there were very few films that you were kind of like, oh, my God, that was a masterpiece.
1: Well, from the outside, the one film that I heard that about was Past Lives, which didn't receive that any film, awards.
0: That film, hands down, well, first of all, it was in premiere, so it wasn't even.
1: Ah, thank you.
0: It's, it wasn't even in
1: competition. It wasn't eligible. Okay, yeah
0: right it was added at the last minute and it is a film that is directed by a screenwriter uh, not a screenwriter a well probably a screenwriter a a playwright named celine song and it takes place over 24 years uh of a boy and a girl who are at, at the age of i don't know 12 they're just kind of like going on their first date but then her family moves away like the next day like they go on their first date her family moves away and you know they then meet up 12 years later uh and then 12 years after that so it's they jump ahead 12 years and 12 years and it's it's a, a beautiful movie and just devastating this it's a it's one of those uh, unrequited love stories it's just brilliant uh you know there were movies by nicole holosensor who uh you know with uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus, that, you know, she's, you know, Nicole Dinner, yes, uh, Friends with Money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, she's, she always delivers. Uh, another film that I think will get a lot of talk is this film Passages. Um, this is a film by Iris Sachs. It's uh, stars. Well, and, that already did get a lot Richard. of
1: attention, of course. It got picked up as well.
0: Yes. I, uh, I think MUBI picked it up, M U B I. Uh they so it's Ben Wishaw. I'm gonna screw this up because I I you know Adele Exarchopolis is the girl who is stuck in between the gay lovers of, you know, Ben Wishaw and his husband, and the husband is a film director who's a real jerk and uh he goes back and forth between, you know, the Adele character and the Ben Wishaw character who he's married to, but then he breaks up with for the Adele. I mean, it's just you think that's you know one thing I heard this year was there was a lot of sex at Sundance. That was true. There was a lot of sex at Sundance, at least on screen. And the movies good too. Yeah. 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 Can't speak for like what was going on in the, in, 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 you know, on the ski slopes, but, uh, at least on screen, there was a, a lot of sex, uh, and look, I mean, it, it was a fairly good year. And what I would say is that Sundance consistently puts together and curates a pretty darn good festival of independent films. However, fair play. That that movie could play easily in a movie theater and actually attract an audience. Now, Ryan Johnson is the producer of that film. Okay. He, that's one of his first films. Uh, and of course, he has a deal with Netflix for the... Uh, uh, Knives Out movies. So there was some question there as to, you know, did Netflix kind of push the, the, the money up because they want to
1: support... Well, uh, they're already paying him a lot of money, so they don't need to give him any more money. You know? well, <laughs> they support the, him with hundreds of millions was, of dollars. So, you know, they, they probably feel like they're already supporting him.
0: Well, the other question was, did he, Ryan Johnson demand theatrical no, release. No. Well that,
1: that's that would be in the contract and we would know about it. But theatrical release can mean two screens for a week. You know, Netflix right. is not interested in doing long running theatrical films. They've made that clear. They haven't budged yet. We think it's a mistake, but they're not. But you know what now, movies a, get 2001. A mm-hmm.
0: Um that, that movie that won the, the yeah. dramatic competition, that movie is went into the festival with distribution. Focus features is releasing that film and yeah. it won the festival
1: okay that's that that's meaningless okay yes what's the point we don't Uh, think movies can't win uh, sundance if they have theatrical distribution lined up no no no, that's a bad thing right so good for it it will be seen in theaters
0: yes ideally
1: yeah not ideally it has a deal right it will be shown in theaters a thousand and one yes right okay well you know those are the What do you mean you assume it already had a deal in place? It's
0: it's a focus feature. You know what happens to focus feature movies? They play for 17 days and then they're on Peacock.
1: Well, there you go. That's also, we think, a mistake. We think the magic number is at least 45 days. And if you're still making money, why the hell would you yank it in the first place? But we're not in charge of distribution at Netflix or Universal, but they're making a mistake there. But some people make the right decisions. And so let's tap them on the back. And that would be the Razzies. They, of course, do their annual awards, ha-ha, where they mock really bad movies. This year, they nominated as Best Actress, a 12-year-old child. A 12-year-old girl was nominated for Best Actress as the worst actress of the year. Yeah, not People a People said, idea. you know what? No, that's really, and to their credit, they said, you're right. We shouldn't have done that. In the future, we will not do any nominations for anybody who's not an adult. They have to be at least 18. And they're going to be aware of that. And they apologize to her. I hope they also point out, by the way, in the past, we have nominated, you know, for worst actress, you know, Meryl Streep and, you know, whoever big names that they've done, as I'm sure they have. So that doesn't take the sting out of it. But I'm glad they recognized that was inappropriate and wrong. And they said, we won't do it again. So I feel like something good came out of that. People said, that's obnoxious. And they said, you're right. And they learn from it and they won't make that mistake in the future. That's where you wanna congratulate somebody. You look at Kit Connor. This is an actor on the TV show Heartstopper, a show where these two young boys, these two teenagers begin to date and have romantic feelings for each other. Uh, You know, he's a kid in a TV show. He's a minor playing a gay character on a TV show, which became a huge worldwide sensation. But when he was seen in public holding hands with a girl and people assumed they were dating, they were all yelling, How dare he play a gay character if he's not gay himself? A, that's completely screwed up. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, it's not quite the same as, you know, playing a black character in blackface. You know, sexuality is very different, but he had all this sort of pressure. And when he turned 18, he had had nothing to do with his age, but he finally came out as bi just months after turning 18 because of all this pressure to say, yeah, I don't think you really paid attention to what the show's about in terms of accepting people for who they are and not pressuring them and being open hearted and all that. He's like, but thank you for forcing me to come out at 18 as bisexual. So it was good of him to come out and to take control of that, but a shame he had to. So people should remember, Sometimes these are kids sometimes you're talking about. So congrats to the Razzies. And I hope the people who gave him grief online realize that they made a mistake, too. But the Oscars, they're excited. We have the Oscar nominations and uh, people behind the Oscars wanted you to know this is exciting. We've had the most number of voters in Oscar history. Isn't that exciting, Sperling? More voters than ever before voted for the Oscar nominations. Wow, that's exciting, isn't it?
0: Yeah, no, not really. They've uh, also added like nine thousand people, except <laughs> us, I might add. Yeah, <laughs> to their. Right. Uh, <laughs> to by
1: their the way, Larry <laughs> Wilmore is just announcing the the best podcast nominations. I'm sure we'll be interrupted during the show by a telegram announcing us. We're one of the top nominees. <laughs> so there yeah, are yeah, we have the don't, Oscar don't, nomination. Don't hold your breath. Don't. <gasps> All right, so the BAFTA (laughs) nominations came out, and they're very similar to the Oscar nominations, so if you're looking for a tell or something to indicate where Oscar voters might be going, keep your eye on the BAFTA awards when those are announced. We've got them listed in our show notes, but the big stuff is the Academy Award nominations. We covered it last week, but you never heard the episode. And you probably know all the exciting stuff. Triangle of Sadness was a bit of a shocker for picture, director, and screenplay. We were thrilled to see Brian Tyree Henry get a nomination for his supporting actor performance in Causeway. Nobody saw that coming, and certainly nobody saw Andrea Riseborough getting a nomination for To Leslie, which is being examined by the Academy right now. What's this? How can somebody in a small film nobody saw get an acting nomination? Well, they had a smart campaign, and people who saw it loved it and championed it to others. We're pretty confident they are not going to rescind that nomination. Uh, It doesn't look like she did much of anything wrong. Maybe there was one ad that was a little a little, you know, slipped through the rules, but not a big deal. But anyway, the yeah, big- Yeah, I mean,
0: the big thing was that they thought like, uh, you know, th- there was a story that, oh, it was all done by viral marketing, you know, on-, on Which is allowed. Which is allowed. Uh, and it was just remarkable that out of nowhere that, that they, they could actually have like all these SAG people kind of going out and saying, no, 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 put it on your Instagram, make sure you vote for And that it would actually work. Well, and now they're saying, "Yeah, but she also had a traditional campaign." Too. Let's not let's not get crazy here. She had a traditional campaign.
1: Too. Well, it was not a big campaign. No, not like at all. they said she didn't have billboards on Sunset Boulevard. This was not a, no. ma- a typical campaign the way other people who had much bigger campaigns and didn't get a nomination had. This was a real, you know, Uh, grassroots thing. We've seen other actors do a campaign for themselves and it's worked. Sally Kirkland in years past and other people have really made it happen. And sometimes when they do it, it backfires. They had a real shot at it and it blows up in their face because they seem too hungry for it or too tacky. In this case, nobody expected this. Nobody saw it. But the people who saw the movie liked it. And as they pointed out to people, only 218 members in the acting branch needed to vote for her in order to get her on the list of the top five. Just 218 people needed to see this movie and say, Mile, I love it. It's the biggest branch, but to get there, to get onto that nomination list, only 218 people needed to single it out. That's a, that's a high bar. Because there's thousands of great performances or thousands of performances every year, not thousands of great performances. But it feels like a low bar when you hear, wow, only 218. I'll vote for it. My friend will vote for it. I'll bet she can do it. So I don't think this is going to lead to any changes. I don't think it's a scandal. I don't think anybody else was cheated out of a nomination because nobody deserves a nomination, even if you think there were better performances of the year by women who uh, you think were overlooked. I'm sure you're right, but that's how the game is played. It's just the Oscars. <laughs> it's not about quality. It's about momentum and the, the year and what's going on. But we do have some front runners. The big front runners for the Oscars. You already know who the nominees are. But the big front runners are the Banshees of Inisherin, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and with a few lesser nominations, but still a lot—about six. Tar. All of those movies got Best Picture, Best Director best screenplay and best editing banshees and everything each got four acting nominations basically all that was possible and tar got best actress which it will probably win and that's probably the only really standout performance in the movie it's all so centered on cape blanchette i liked some other people in the film as well but really that's probably the only acting nomination it would have expected to get so they all basically got everything you could hope for in terms of nominations and those are the big ones So who do you think is going to win best actor? Oh, now you're asking me to, well, it ain't going to be Tom Cruise. Um, best actor I think is, uh, he wasn't nominated. No, I know. That's why he wasn't nominated. Um, I think it's a toss up. You're going to say Austin Butler and I'm going to say, I'm hoping Brendan Fraser. Yeah. Well, you know, he had the, the tearful, uh, Uh, acceptance speech at the Golden Globes. That helps. It's a comeback story. Uh, He could win it. I also think Colin Farrell is in the mix because he's uh, had a substantial career um, and they really love the Banshees of Inishiran. I think it'll come down to those two, but I think you're right. I feel like uh, Brendan Fraser will win Best Actor. Kate Blanchett will win Best Actress. Uh, Best Supporting Actor, um, I think is going to be the guy from Everything Everywhere, Ki-Huai Kwan. Um, And I thought he was terrific. Um, Which, which
0: by the way, if that happens, ki hoo Kwan, if that happens, I would like to point out in the 1984 film, or was it 1985? I think it's 1984 film, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Harrison Ford and ki hoo Kwan starred in that movie, and ki hoo Kwan would be the only Oscar recipient in that film. (laughs) So (laughs) <laughs> just just to—is that
1: that unusual a thing?
0: No, I'm just saying that like Harrison Ford has had this lengthy career. Quan at the in '84 he was 12 years old. You know he was, you know he was a little boy making this movie. And in the end, if he gets a, if he wins an Oscar, he will have an Oscar, and Harrison Ford will not.
1: Harrison Ford has only been nominated for one Oscar in his career. That was for Best Actor for Witness, uh, that came out yes. in 1986. So. uh Uh, whether he should have won that year, I don't know, but uh, yeah, he's a terrific actor but he's uh, starring in the films that don't often get acknowledged, you know, action films, big, big commercial hits uh, that doesn't help a lot and I feel like he stumbled his career a bit later in his career because he was making movies where he just had to be the star, he did not segue well into those supporting character roles he lost in that year Uh, the Oscars were held in 1986, it was for movies that came out in 1985 he lost to William Hurt for Kiss of the Spider Woman, um, also not were James Garner for Murphy's Romance, Jack Nicholson for Pritzy's Honor, and John Voight for Runaway Train. I'll bet it, you know, Jack, Harrison, and William, I, I, w- I would have given it to Harrison Ford. I think that's a terrific performance and a really fun commercial movie. I think it's a really good movie, and it's a great movie star performance, you know? He really just makes that movie work.
0: Yes, it, yes, absolutely.
1: And, uh, and I think it's held up very, very well. Uh, so that's who we think are going to win in the acting awards. But what do you think will win Best Picture? Now, it's not just about these four films. Now, of course, Banshees has been a nice, modest hit on the art circuit. Everything Everywhere has been a sensation. And Tar has been a bit of a commercial disappointment. Not that people had huge expectations for it commercially. It will probably not lose them money when all is said and done. But it's only at like $9 million worldwide. So it's certainly not uh, tearing it up. Uh, Everything Everywhere is certainly a hit. And also on the best picture list are four big commercial films, Avatar, The Way of Water, Elvis, a Top Gun Maverick. And I would say Everything Everywhere All At Once deserves to be considered a big commercial hit. So among the front runners, Banshees, Everything, in Tar, do you think one of them is going to win or will it be a surprise?
0: I think it might be a bit of a surprise. And here's why. I think because they do this preferential balloting. Mm-hmm. I think people will, either, you'll have your Banshees people, you'll have your Tar people, you'll have your, everything, uh, which is a bit divisive, you know,
1: some of the older voters like, I don't get it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't think Top Gun Maverick, I don't think anybody's going to vote for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I think that you're, it's going to wind up being like the one that most people liked second or third. Uh-huh. So I think maybe Elvis, maybe Tar, but it's going to be one of those like, wait, what? How did, it didn't win any of these, but then it won, what? Like, I think that's uh, what, what might wind up happening
1: there. Well, that's what people always say, but then when you look back. I know, you know I know. You, you see King Richard, oh, well, that was Best Actor, I'm sorry. When you look back, uh, you know, sometimes there's lots of uh, funky movies that, that win Best Picture that are not like the liked ones in the last few years. Coda, is that just a liked movie or is that a movie that people were passionate about? I think think that's their second and third pick.
0: Yeah, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was everybody's second pick, and not everybody's. But I think there were enough. What about *Nomadland*?
1: *Nomadland* is certainly not a. uh,
0: Well, that was a year where like barely anything came out because of the pandemic. I mean, there were no movies after the first uh, three months of the year.
1: All right, and then what about the year before, in which *Parasite* won?
0: Parasite was and that was going up against um, another Four versus film.
1: Ferrari, The Irishman by Martin Scorsese, Joker, Little Women, Marriage Story, 1917 and and Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
0: Right, and everybody thought 1917 was going to win and it was like you know, just Well, no, the- no
1: foreign language film had ever won Best Picture. So that's is that your second choice, model? well, I liked that one or was that more a case of people were passionate about it?
0: I think that might be one of the ones where people went, you know what, out of all these, Parasite was the most unique, Parasite was the one that was kind of the most innovative, I'm going to go with that
1: one. Mm-hmm. And Moonlight, of course, won, and I think that's another example of a passion project that, that really uh, scored. But yeah, every year is different. Um, I would say of all those movies, I think Tar is going to win because that would annoy me the most.
0: Yes, I know. When can, I saw Tar got nominated, I was like, oh boy.
1: <laughs> you can always depend on, some, on on Oscar to annoy you. But some people are happy. Ireland, for example, they got 14 nominations. Movies from Ireland got 14 nominations, a record for them. And A24, the hipster indie distributor company or filmmaking company, they got 18 nominations. So they're very happy. And Khan had a good year. They have six films in the Oscar race and a short. So Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, EO, All That Breed, Close the foreign language film and the short film Le Pupil, which was uh, produced by Alfonso Cuarón. Uh, those are all in the mix at the Oscar race, so they had a good year. Yeah, and have you seen *All Quiet on the Western Front*? I have
0: not yet. I have to. I mean, I saw the original, but not this
1: one. What's original? The Richard Thomas TV movie version from the '70s, or the '33 original?
0: '33, the one that you know, black and white. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: Well, that, I just read work. the book for the first time and then I watched this film and I have to say it really really botches up the book in the final third. It's ridiculous the changes they made. They 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 remove the entire point of the title of the book and the entire you know, traumatic, devastating ending of the novel, which I won't spoil here, but they just throw that aside and do something else for the end of the movie. It's just, uh, it's just, uh, it's bad. Uh, I, I thought it was just workmanlike for the first two thirds. I wasn't enthralled by it. And then the final third, they added in stuff with the peace negotiations and certain changes to the ending of the book that just weaken it and make it a lot more heavy handed and obvious. So not a fan. But I think that will win Best International Film, nonetheless, because it got a Best Picture nomination, lots of nominations. There's an excellent five movies in the Best International Film category. If you're looking for really good movies to see, I would say watch those five films. Watch the five films in the Best Animated uh, section. Watch the five films in the Best Doc section, if you like. Watch the 10 Best Films.
0: And and by the way, Best Doc section, Mm -hmm. four out of five are from Sundance.
1: There you go. And you're going to have about 23, 25 movies that are well worth seeing. So you will have seen a good chunk of some of the better movies of the year if you watch those 25 films. And that's the whole reason we pay attention to the Oscars. The whole show and who gets nominated and who doesn't, doesn't matter. Uh, Is it going to help movies at the box office? Not so much anymore. It's hard to time those movies so they can benefit, but Women Talking did a pretty good job. If it had gotten uh, a directing nomination and more acting nominations, it might have capitalized even more, but it's certainly got a boost of attention. So that's cool to see.
0: And do Some, you want to even talk about the BAFTAs? Because it's the no, same no, thing. No, 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 it's again. the
1: same stuff. Like I said, uh, a lot of overlap from the BAFTAs. So if you want to get a hint to who has momentum, watch the BAFTA winners and then you'll see, okay, yeah, maybe that's a hint about who might triumph on Oscar night. Some people not triumphing right now are in our social justice section. Marilyn Manson has been set by accusations of sexual assault and rape for a number of years now. So far, more than a dozen women have come forward with stories about a sexual abuse Abuse, assault and rape. And now Marilyn Manson faces a new civil suit alleging sexual assault on a minor. Uh, separately Fox News they've been beleaguered for years Uh, an ex-employee is suing the company for the sexual harassment she faced and the blackmail when she complained about it Uh, so that's not good and then on the slightly different angle we have two other stories Uh, the lighter the lighter one one involves Good Morning America 3 GMA 3 this show my mom is a big fan so I happen to know this show very well the co hosts Amy Robach and TJ Holmes they started having a relationship while they were both still technically married though they say their relationships were ending that became public the tabloids went crazy and i think abc jumped the gun they dumped them from the show took them off the air even though they yeah that was just stupid they hadn't broken any internal rules they are employees but they are you know equivalent to each other they are not and there was no real scandal unless you think something reported by the post or the daily mail is automatically a scandal and they just yanked them off the air and then they saw the ratings didn't really drop and they just decide, you know what? It's just too much of a bother. just, they've got, they're dumping them. They're getting rid of them. Even though they did not breach their contract, the duo says they did not break any morals clause. It was a consensual relationship of equals. And now ABC is like, uh, everybody go their own way. So a very contentious breakup for them and ABC, which had a really successful show with two talented people. Far as I'm concerned, y- ABC. Y- you know what? Lose. Those
0: two talented people are, are are going their own way all the way to their lawyer's office.
1: Well, they are. Um, they will certainly get a big payout because ABC has already admitted they didn't break any rules. So why are they firing them from a very lucrative career? I think I'm at CNN or NBC or MSNBC or or CBS. I'm going to snap them up in a heartbeat because I think they're yeah. a great team. People would like to see that team. They don't mind it with Morning Joe, do they? And if they want to stay together as a team, maybe they'd like to go their separate ways career-wise for whatever reason, but um, you know, if they want to stay working together as a team, I think people would be smart to pick them up. On the other hand, I don't think people were going to be jumping to work with Justin Roiland. Roiland, I should say. He's a co-creator of Rick and Morty, one of the most successful animated series around. And he has now been charged by the Orange County DA with one felony count of domestic battery and one felony count of false imprisonment. The incident occurred in January of 2020. He has pled innocent and says he is innocent of all the charges. Nonetheless, the he has been dumped by Adult Swim, the company which has Rick and Morty and had just a few years ago re-upped them for like another 70 episodes. Um, he actually voices the two main characters. Those will be recast. Hulu has dumped him as well. He's a co-creator of the animated series Solar Opposites, and he does voice work on that show and also does one of the characters on the animated series Koala Man at Hulu. So obviously we take any any you know accusation of of something like domestic battery and false imprisonment seriously. But there's this one charge that's in the court system and he has not been found guilty yet. If 20 people show up, you say, well, okay, you don't really need the courts to get to work to know I don't want to be in business with Marilyn Manson. Uh, But this is tricky, right? The shows are in production. It's going to take a year or more at least for this stuff to work its way through the court system. What are they supposed to do? Uh, I think it's unfair for them to dump, justin roiland based on an accusation by a single person however seriously i may take that but they got to keep making the shows they need a voice person to do those characters what do they do what did they make the big mistake here or what
0: uh you know yeah i don't i don't know it's it's a it's a horrible position to be in i mean how do you do that You know, you do want to see like you don't want to basically cancel somebody over some over a crime. You might want to suspend them and say, listen, work out your criminal thing. And by the way, if you get convicted, Obviously, you're out. But <laughs> right, right.
1: Convicted, and if, and if uh, five other people show up saying, "Hey, I, he did the same thing to me," you're like, "Yeah, I've got, I've got all the info I need." Um, yeah, we're not eager to like come to the defense of Justin Roiland, but dumping somebody over uh, a, a charge that has not been proven in court uh, is it also doesn't sit well with me. I don't know how you handle it because he does voice the two main characters and they're making more episodes and they can't pause the show for two years while it works its way through the system. But something fairer, like we reluctantly, you know, you were not say, look, you know, you're facing this charge. Uh, We can't, you know, we can't just look the other way and pretend it's not happening. But, you know, cutting all ties with them the second it happens, you know, it's not somebody called up and made an accusation. The Orange County DA has filed these charges in court. So it's very seriously and should be taken serious. But there should be something uh, a little between complete abandonment and saying we love him and we don't believe it. You know, I I don't think they struck the right balance there. Not that I'm eager to, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, being cognizant of time. uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Well, we'll move to streaming. I'll try to be quick. A lot has happened. And there's three big stories that I just want to touch on. One is that the HBO show, The Last of Us, is really becoming a massive hit. Two is that we have our weekly numbers for the most valuable properties in streaming. That's according to Nielsen. And that's just looking at people who are watching stuff in North America on their smart TVs. So the stuff I watch on my laptop, the stuff Sperling watches on his on his iPhone or somebody else on their iPad, that's not being included, but it gives us a good idea of what's popular. And in that area, Wednesday, the new TV series is still proving a really big hit. And finally, Nielsen has shown us the most popular streaming properties of the year. We've got links to all this stuff in our show notes. And when you look at those lists, you see a lot of kid-friendly fare. You see Coco Melon and Bluey and SpongeBob SquarePants. And uh, that brings me back to HBO. They've got this big hit with The Last of Us, and we're hearing about the numbers, but there's a lot of other HBO stuff we don't hear about. They're just telling us about this. How big is Sesame Street for HBO, which has had the rights to that? Is that fading in popularity? And if so, does that explain why they sort of cut loose some episodes? Anyway, The Last of Us is based on a video game. It was a big hit right out of the box. The week two episode built Significantly on week one, I think they said it was the biggest growth for episode two of a series in HBO history. Now, after a few weeks, the first episode has been seen by 22 million people and the numbers look really good for the second and third episodes as well. So this is really turning into one of their biggest hits since Game of Thrones, if not the biggest hit since Game of Thrones. That's pretty cool. But when they mentioned it, they compared it to Euphoria. And they said, by the way, Euphoria, that series, the last season, it averaged 19.5 million viewers. I think we've mentioned this before, but that's a massive hit. We know it got uh, Emmy nominations. We knew it was a hit. But when we're talking about the biggest shows of the year, Euphoria is bigger than anything on the major networks. Correct. It's almost yes. bigger than anything on uh, uh, on cable. You know, it's, it's bigger than almost anything. And it's not being covered because HBO doesn't allow itself to be tracked by Nielsen day in and day out. I think they're making a big mistake. I also think the ability to track all this stuff and to get it in people's attention and let them know what the big hits are. I think everybody's missing a big opportunity. I think it's a big mistake. But what do The Last of Us, Wednesday, and Sesame Street all have in common? People have just died who have been connected to these shows. Shows. Actor Annie Worshing died at 45. She had never a big star, but she had good story arcs on uh, Bosch. On the Vampire okay. Diaries, on 24 with Kiefer Sutherland. Most recently, she was on Star Trek: Picard, playing a Borg Queen. Uh, she's a really interesting talent, uh, and she died way too young at 45. But she also voiced a character on the video game franchise The Last of Us. A lot of talented people do work in video. games Is this games like now. a
0: game you're playing? Like, are, are we doing like the Six Degrees of Who's on Streaming? You know, like well, what?
1: well, she played. She voiced the work of the character Tess, who is a smuggler who works with the lead character Joel um, on Wednesday. The actress who played Wednesday in the original TV series, she just died, unfortunately. Lisa Loring died at the age of 64. Uh, Wednesday was really the peak of her career as an actor, though she continued to work for many years. Funny side note or interesting side note, I say this not to be whatever, but later in her career, she worked as a makeup artist on adult films. There's an interesting little twist of fate. That's interesting. And finally, Sesame Street, one of the creators of Sesame Street has died at the age of 94. His name is, where is he? Uh, Lloyd Morissette. He was a, a significant early spur to Sesame Street. He sort of came up with the idea talking with somebody else at a dinner party. He helped make it happen. He raised the funds for it. If there was no Lloyd Morissette, there would have been no Sesame Street, certainly not in the way it was conceived. So, uh He has died now at 93 but that's a pretty damn good legacy isn't it i think he's a big deal
0: oh well if you think he's a big deal guess what Mm -hmm. i'm not even going to try and transition it's just time for big deal or big whoop our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines and entertainment we tell you whether they're really important or just Overhyped nonsense. Here's our first story. Okay. We waited a little before reporting on this story just so we could try to understand it Apparently the role-playing game Dungeons and Dragons played by nerds everywhere (laughs) has an open game license in effect It's got this open game. It's been in effect for many years. This allows third-party people to create extensions of the game, new content and systems that use the rules of the the iconic RPG role-playing game. People can publish and sell and profit from this stuff, which is all above board, no pun intended, and legal and has been for a long time. Mm -hmm. Arguably, it's one reason D&D has flourished over the years. Think of it as the RPG equivalent of... You know, the Grateful Dead, you know, they used to let you come in with recorders and record their music. They let fans plug into the. Oh, yeah. OK, here you go. You're, you're kind of telling me they let fans plug into the soundboards and record their live shows. And that actually, believe it or not, helped the Grateful Dead flourish as one of the most lucrative live acts of all time. Everybody was happy, the band, the fans. Then it leaked out that the owners of D&D were going to, quote unquote, update the open game license and make make it so uh, you know, it's not going to be so open anymore. They were going to demand royalties from others, phase out the original agreement and generally take much more control over a system in, in place for decades. Naturally, people who invested a lot of time, a lot of energy into what was sold as a permanent open game license were not too happy. People quit various subscriptions, revolted online, signed petitions, creators vowed never to create for D&D again, and, you know, so on and so forth. The owners dithered for days and finally backed down saying they'd start from scratch and work hand in hand with third party creators on any changes. I don't know if
1: they said it like that, but I did. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Big deal or big whoop. Uh, It's a big deal. They're going to pay a big price for this, no matter what happens in the end with what they change or don't change. They have posted a draft of a creative commons license. They insist everything covered by the original agreement will remain. So they're like, look, look, we want like, what if somebody not launches like a Nazi D and D gameplay extension? We want to be able to act and say, you can't do that. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had no problems for all these decades. Why now they clearly botched it. And when you have an open game license to say, yeah, Actually, we don't want to do that anymore. That's not how that works. (laughs) You don't get to revoke an open license. That should be forever. In fact, some of the people involved in creating that original open game license say, there is no way, shape, or form where you can rescind this. That's not our intent. It wasn't when we did it. And that's BS. In any case, another company has launched an open role-playing game creative license to be worldwide and irrevocable. Uh, even though this one was irrevocable as well, involved according to some of the people who did it. Major players in the industry have embraced this. Legendary Games, Rogue Genius, and Pathfinder are just some of the many who are saying, we're going to go over there. Others are devising their own paths and never used this original game license in the first place. It is a major upheaval, and D&D is a major property. They've got that movie coming out, but that's not something they have a financial stake in. But that could have only helped bring attention to Dungeons & Dragons. This is exactly what they don't need they had something that wasn't broke and now it is
0: well and it kind of um mirrors what happened at twitter right Mm -hmm. and and, uh at twitter uh the the company decided that all basically they closed their api so all third-party apps you know Tweetbot and twitterific and all these different well i think twitterific may be owned by twitter now but Mm -hmm. all of the third-party uh apps that used that used this API for 15 years. They basically got shut off overnight, mm-hmm. and they had whole businesses. Hootsuite. These are whole businesses that are basically being turned off by this one company. The but difference that I think is, is that is the they risk were... you run. It's the risk you run when you build your platform when you build on somebody else's platform.
1: Right. Though in this case, it was specifically with the uh, uh, promise that this would never be revoked. That's how it was designed and meant. So they would even be challenged in court. If somebody could afford to challenge them and say, look, you're not allowed to revoke this. this is, that's what that means. I don't believe they had the same thing with Twitter, but yeah, that is definitely the danger when you build your whole career around something that can yank it back again.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now full credit to Taylor Swift, just full credit to her. I mean, she's Absolutely. just like, she's yeah. killing it. Uh, you know, her, Ticket sales are going, you know, through the roof. Uh, Oh, and by the way, she's enjoying the biggest hit of her career as the song Antihero, a song about me. Uh, It spends its eighth week at number one. Right. She's now been
1: supplanted by Miley Cyrus, who's had a big hit with Flowers, but that's another story.
0: That's a great song, by the way. Flowers? Yeah. Uh, Now, if you feel like commercial radio plays the same songs over and over and over and over for longer and longer periods well actually you know here's the thing you're right actually you're totally right they do that in fact commercial radio often focuses on just 15 hit songs in rotation with an even bigger focus on a handful of those songs like guess what anti-hero or anti-hero radio is simply playing fewer and fewer new songs by new artists coming to the rescue public radio a handful of stations like KUTX in Austin, KCMP in Minneapolis, KCRW here in Los Angeles, they're enjoying significant surges in ratings by playing this little thing called new music. (laughs) They must cater to their local audiences, the people who donate money to them and keep the lights on. And if they play the same hits over and over and over and over and over and over again, those listeners complain. So they're embracing their roles as, as like new music ambassadors, curators, especially new music by local acts that, you know, each one of those stations does that KEXP does the same thing in Seattle. Now record labels love it and audiences are responding. Is this a big deal or a big whoop?
1: Uh, It's a big deal because there aren't many outlets for new music and to break new acts, and that's what you need. I have a friend in Minneapolis who's a big music person. He loves KCMP. He says it's a great station to listen to. When I was looking uh, for information on some of my favorite acts of the year because I'm working on my best albums of the year list, we'll have it out this week before the Grammys come next Sunday. Uh, When I was looking for stuff and profiles and features, time and time again, I would find a profile on NPR, NPR. And other public radio station outlets. Those are the people covering the new artists that I'm listening to. Not, you know, the New York... Not really big outlets or big commercial outlets. That's not where you're finding the attention. It's coming on those types of stations. So that's cool to see. In other music news, Justin Bieber sold the publishing rights to his songs. Just a kid, really. But he has. He sold them for $200 million. Uh, Our in-house film critic, Aaron Rich, said, that doesn't seem like a lot of money. Uh, I would point out...
0: He's like 30 years old. Right, he's still got another
1: 30 years of of music to write. But another thing to keep in mind is that unlike, say, Neil Diamond or Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen and their catalogs, uh, he has a lot of co-writes. He has a lot of co-writes. So he has an eighth of a song, a fourth of a song, a third of a song, a fifth of a song. So that dilutes the income from them and changes your formula when you think about how valuable the publishing rights are. And, you know, 200 million, it ain't chicken scratch. So he'll be all right. By the way, we broke it down, uh, the publishing rights for his songs, that $200 million that comes out to about 300,000 for every time he sang baby.
0: Oh, okay. I, you really have too much time on your hands. Uh, (laughs) Country superstar, Zach Bryan, never sang the word baby. I'm I'm sure he has. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he has exploded onto the scene and with great power, comes great responsibility. And that is why he is uh, swinging from building to building (laughs) with webs from his no, just kidding. Uh, And Brian, uh, he accepts this responsibility. He's touring arenas with Ticketmaster using AXS instead. Fans register for a chance to purchase tickets. They're randomly chosen and sent instructions on how to do so. In four cities, resales are banned entirely in other cities. Fans can resell their tickets via a Zach Bryan website for face value only. That's the big catch. You can resell them for face value. Big deal or big whoop?
1: Uh, I think it's a a big whoop in a way until he succeeds. You know, talk to Pearl Jam about how hard this is to do. But hey, you know what? Instead of logging in to try and buy tickets, only to discover the show is immediately sold out. But tickets are available for resale for thousands of dollars, which has happened with numerous recent shows. At least he's doing something about it. You know, and ideally, if you bought these tickets, you'd also have to show up with your ID or credit card that you used to purchase it at the venue. It is not that hard. To stop people. It's hard because Ticketmaster has so many exclusive rights to so many venues, but in terms of stopping counterfeiting and people buying tickets and then reselling them, if they can't do it, if they literally can't resell it without getting it for face value, then, you know, they're screwed and it won't happen. This is not a problem that can't be fixed. And Zach Bryan at least is taking the first step towards doing it
0: yeah you know and going back to your previous story here the previous story uh you know kcrw would look at this story and go this is not a big deal we've been you know we've had you know new music and we've been introducing our listeners to new music for 30 years so KEXP, same thing
1: like they're known for doing but they're but they're really um we're seeing across the country significant ratings gains which we haven't necessarily seen they are really growing in viewership And they are crediting part of that, uh, after all this time, to the fact that it's one of the few outlets where you can find new music. And so actual passionate music fans are saying, I'm going to listen to KCMP. I'm going to listen to KUTX, because I sure as hell am getting sick of listening to my local radio station that's just part of a big network nationally and plays the same seven songs every hour on the hour, which drives me nuts.
0: Well, this next story is interesting. Belarus is not a major market for movies or music or TV. Nonetheless, the country rang alarm bells in media companies when it passed a law legalizing piracy. If you're an unfriendly country, then anyone in Belarus can steal your movies or music or whatever Western companies handled, you know, Belarus through their Russian, on- you know, they. you could just basically you could just take take the media that you want and use it for commercial purposes. But since Russia launched the largest land war in Europe since World War Two, those offices, all of those media companies offices, they've been closed in Belarus and Russia. Russian cinemas toyed with stealing digital copies of movies and showing them in theaters. A lot of piracy in music and other realms originates in Russia. And now Belarus could become a hotbed for stealing that kind of content as well. And in fact, in Russia, there is a bill working its way through the. uh,
1: To say, of course, you can steal stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's basically a a mandatory license. You can't like prevent somebody from licensing your your material. Uh, You do have to pay the copyright owner at some point, but the way they do it is they say, we'll pay you once you uh, reestablish commercial ties with us
1: on good Right. You got to do business with us legally. Yeah. Right. So is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. Uh, Russia is going to be hurting itself long term in terms of the media and stuff that they have access to and their relationships with other countries. Uh, And they're also a hotbed of piracy. And now this just means Belarus will be yet another market where... Pirates can operate willy-nilly and help populate this stuff all over the world. It's not just about losing that minor market of Belarus. It's about having pirates there with a safe haven where they can spread this stuff all over the world. And that's the problem that media companies are going to be very unhappy about.
0: I agree. Now, that wraps up, big dealer, big whoop, for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business. More importantly, how they affect you. Now, here's how this first story affects you. If you are a subscriber to Amazon Music- I am. You will be paying $1 per month extra from 10 to $11 million, million. Yeah, from 10 million to $11 million. Wow. 10 to $11. Uh, and And then our last story actually, Uh, If your name happens to be
1: Greg Peters, then you are the new co-CEO of Netflix. (laughs) And in the middle, we have Peacock. So yes, at Amazon Music. Is the music streaming biz getting pricier? It is for listeners. They have recently raised their monthly subscription in the U.S., From $10 to $11, that was at Apple Music. Now Amazon Music is matching that price increase. They each have about 80 million subscribers. I am not a wealthy man. I do pay attention to my monthly um, automated billing stuff, which I hate having. i rather like to pay the bills physically rather than have to have it automatically billed to my card. But there's one or two things that you can avoid that with. This is one of them. I did not notice the dollar increase in streaming, nor am I upset, nor will that cause me to cancel it. That doesn't mean I'm willing to accept anything forever, but it's a perfectly reasonable increase after all this time. Now, Spotify has 195 million subscribers and almost half a billion active users, and they refuse to raise their price. They haven't raised their price in oh, well over a decade. And Music Business Worldwide, a website, a newsletter we really like and pay attention to all the time, they're taking Spotify to task for the major mistakes it's made, and they lay the blame squarely at the feet of Daniel Eck. Eck himself said he takes full responsibility, and and MBW says, well, you should. Spotify, unlike them, is not raising its prices. It hasn't done it in the past 12 years in North America. Right now, they are firing 6% of their workforce. They have spent what MBW calls a monstrous amount of money on sales, staff, and marketing, like it's silly tie-in with the soccer team FC Barcelona. They spent a monstrous amount of money on podcasts, Literally one billion dollars since 2019, and burned through tons of cash doing so. And they're not and even. And by the way, <laughs> hello, hello, come on, <laughs> <You> people,
0: let <laughs> I me mean, give, get, get, give us
1: a little, a little of that podcast money that's spotify money and no one even thinks whatever your ethics are concerned that paying for big name properties like joe rogan is a mistake it's the hundreds of millions of dollars they spend on all this other stuff trying to generate hits which is not their jam that's yet more credit to netflix on how what a switch it was from sending out dvds to creating hit programming Those are not connected skill sets. So that's how hard it is. And Netflix does it really well. Spotify has not shown any gift for generating hits either in the podcast world or elsewhere. But yeah, you can pick up a big property and make money off that. But it's the tons of money they spent trying to generate content and new hits that has not sat well with them and has burned through a ton of cash, um, all because they hope people would listen to more podcasts and less music. The reason people go to Spotify in the first place. And finally, podcasts have generated like $200 million euros in revenue last fiscal year but it cost them about 300 million euros so they were losing 100 million from their coffers by the way
0: mm-hmm. totally not the way to do business
1: okay <laughs> and be, well idea. it depends and maybe if you're going public and uh, people say well you're on the right trend we're trending right you can you can go public and cash out <laughs> so um yeah. it's a big mess uh, where do you get your music from would you be would you be upset if it went up a dollar or two spotify Anything. How much have yeah, it now? It all, yeah. Your family plan? I
0: think plan? I pay $15 now for a family plan.
1: Right. That could go up to 20 and that would still seem like a deal.
0: Mm, yeah. The $20
1: for four people? Really? Do okay. you think that's yeah, too right, much? Fine. Fine. Yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. I'll pay. Yeah. Right. So, you know, they could raise a dollar a year for a few years and then stop for a while. And, it, you know, they'd still be lower than what you'd be willing to pay. Well, what's going on at Peacock? Here's another streamer. They were having a little trouble, but they surprised people a bit. They have hit 20 million paid subscribers. I think they've doubled their paid subscribers in the last 12 months. Their revenue has doubled to $660 million. But don't worry, just like Spotify, uh, they're losing money on that. (laughs) Their losses, they say, will peak at about $3 billion and then go down. Which is, you know, sounds like a good idea, and of course, they've got one of their biggest original hits. It looks like with Poker Face, the Ryan Johnson, Natasha Leone series, which is kind of like a modern day Columbo, and looks like a breakout hit for them. Uh, though we're still waiting on the first big numbers, but Peacock's got a good story to tell, don't they?
0: Uh, I guess so. And in, in in that regard, yes,
1: we're going to start losing less money any day now. <laughs> that's pretty much
0: Disney Plus's
1: uh you know
0: that's the same thing with Disney Plus and every streamer these days it's hey I know you think we're we're like spending money like it's going out of stock we are actually we're spending so much money uh, in fact we're losing money uh Netflix however is actually making money
1: and they want and everybody wants to be Netflix why because they made that massive pivot from sending dvds in the mail to offering it via streaming which is a big technological change to becoming a content creator and doing a really really good job and uh, they again surprised investors with much better numbers than people expected right before they came out with their quarterly report i was reading stories saying, ah, they're gonna have this awful report it's gonna be this that how oh, it sells hell sell and then what happened they have launched their cheaper ad supported tier and at the same time they've added seven million subscribers in the fourth quarter far surpassing expectations they're at 230 million paid subscribers worldwide they promised to crack down on password sharing uh reed hastings has stepped down uh they've got a, a the, maybe a free ad supported tier in the future Well, they're not saying no but not right now you know you never know uh etc 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 okay well what, what was that uh, little you know, thing i, I th- what I, was that middle that- thing? <laughs> Reed Hastings has stepped down. Their oh, co-CEO, yeah, well. Reed Hastings, has stepped down after all these years. He will remain as the executive chairman, but presumably not be day-to-day. The COO, Greg Peters, is now the co-CEO. He has been in charge and more and more visible in the last few years, launching the Ad Tier Network, which has proven very successful so far, working on gaming, not so much, and promising to crack down on password sharing, which investors at least believe is a big key to helping them improve their revenue even more. So this is kind of an earthquake, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I think uh, what they're going to find out is um, it'll be interesting to see whether all of those people who are sharing passwords, usually among families, um, I would say a large majority of it is among families, whether whether that actually boosts revenue whether those people would have paid for Netflix or they're just going to be like darn i don't have access to Netflix anymore <laughs> you
1: know they just don't have you know won't won't watch stuff on Netflix i think the the hands-off attitude is best you know you get like four shares and you're presumably sharing with your family or close friends and after that you have to pay more That's the way it is now. They've also made it easier to set it up so you don't have to give those people your password. So you have sort of a slightly separate account with different access, which makes it easier to say, yeah, you know what? You're on your own now because you don't have to take away your password or change it. I think all those changes would be natural. I don't think you should care where somebody's located physically. If my son's in college and I want to keep paying his Netflix account, so what? I do it with his Amazon Music or you know his Spotify account. I do it for some other stuff. I should be able to do that and not have to explain to you, well, I know he's not physically here, but he's my son and he's in college and I want to keep paying for Netflix. So they have a system in place that I think could work very well and I think they just need to, you know, not tweak it too much, because like you say, you know, don't make don't make life difficult for people. Um, I don't think there's a ton of you know, people who are getting it for free who are dying to pay for it. You know, I think you would speaking find of dying. Speaking yeah, of dying. But, you, but you were more worried about Reed Hastings. You thought, look, that's a big change. My God, he's been in charge for all these years. Yeah, but he's been stepping away for quite a while now. Yeah. So I think it was a really smooth transition, just like they do a good job in creating content. uh, Hopefully they'll do with the right balance and cracking down on password sharing and not worry about too much whether you're lovers or you're just giving it to a distant friend or it's your kid at college. Don't angst over all that because you're just going to annoy people. I think they did a good job with this transition.
0: What about the tr- transition, the final transition that some people make? <laughs> that That's right. How, that's how, how am I doing
1: with my, my transitions today? Oh, wonderful, how about wonderful. That? Well, I've got to wrap it up because Sperling is already making that, you know, speed it up signal that they make on live TV. We, um, we have to number, get to a commercial break. We have to get geez. to a commercial break. <laughs> uh, indie producer Edward R. Pressman died at 79. He was a very independent figure, a big supporter of talent from Terrence Malik's debut Badlands to Oliver Stone, Wall Street and a lot of movies with him uh he did lots of projects 100 plus projects uh david burns true stories conan the barbarian big boosted the careers of Brian De Palma, Mary Heron, David Gordon Green, Charles Burnett, you name it. And not enough people talk about acting coaches, but actor and acting coach Sandra Seacat has died at the age of 86. She was a disciple of Lee Strasberg, one of the most notable acting coaches of her generation. The list of people she influenced, Laura Dern, Common, Mickey Work, Jessica Lange, Harvey Keitel, on and on. One of her last credits was playing the mother of Andrew Garfield in the miniseries Under the Banner of Heaven, which makes sense because she was a big influence on him as an acting coach. Uh, Hoops analyst Bobby Packer, dead at 82. If you love basketball, college basketball, you knew Bobby Packer. He was the voice of the Final Four for more than 30 years. Uh, Actor Everett Quinton, You probably don't know him unless you live in New York City and love, you know, funny, silly off-Broadway theater. Uh, He died at the age of 71. He was the lover of Charles Ludlam. He started working with Ludlam at the Ridiculous Theater Company. And when Ludlam died um, of AIDS in 1987, Everett Quinton continued on keeping Ludlam's work alive and creating new stuff as well. Uh, He did Ludlam's work for the next 35 years, performing in shows uh, and doing like The Mystery of Irma Vep and other stuff. Uh, a real talent. It was a, a real fun guy to see. And working up to the end, he was in the romantic comedy Bros, but his heart is in off-Broadway. Uh, and director Bruce Gowers directed all sorts of live television. Uh, he won Grammys, Emmys, and DGAs. He died at 82. He did the first nine seasons of American Idol. So I, I certainly knew his work very well. And hundreds and hundreds of music videos from Michael Jackson, Prince, John Mellencamp, Rush, Fleetwood Mac. Here's this. He he's He's a great answer to a trivia question. What was the first music video aired on the BBC's iconic series Top of the Pops. And the answer is Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. And Gowers filmed it in about three hours at Elstree Studios in London in 1975. You've probably seen it, the four of them, you know, like the album cover, looking up with the lights coming down on them, singing Bohemian Rhapsody. It was the first and biggest number one hit in the UK for the band and turned them really into superstars. And he was paid about $600. And finally, some big music people died. Motown legend Barrett Strong, who sang on Motown's first big breakout hit, Money, That's What I Want. And also with uh, songwriter Norman Whitfield, penned some of their biggest hits for the label, like Papa Was a Rolling Stone. I Heard It Through the Grapevine, and on and on and on. Uh, Tom Verlaine, the founder of 70s icon band Television one of the most important bands coming out of CBGB. He died at 73, a major influence on guitar CBGB,
0: the, the New York City, you know...
1: CBGs, yeah, the the classic venue in New York City, which is no longer with us, I believe. And singer David Crosby of the Birds and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and Crosby and Stills and other groups. He died at the age of 81. God bless him for living so long. he, He did a lot of drugs. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice, first with the Birds and then with the super group Crosby, Stills and Nash. That group, their second gig, Woodstock. And then Neil Young was along for the ride as well. Lots of drugs, lots of infighting, a hard guy to get along with a liver transplant, helping Melissa Redditch have a baby. Uh, life was never boring for David Crosby. He was a handful and he knew it. Uh, a friend of the show, Sal Nunziata, who has the, the very fun website, uh, burning wood. He had an anecdote about David Crosby coming into his record store that he used to have in New York city called NYCD. He's like, he was so excited to meet David Crosby. Yeah. Big, Famous people would walk in all the time, and he was pretty cool about it. But uh, David Crosby, he was pretty excited. Mark Cohn, a, a fine songwriter and talent, came in with him one day. Mark Cohn used to be a regular at the store, and in came David Crosby. And how you doing? You know, he comes in, and he starts looking at CDs in the store and making nasty comments about all of them. I should have been on this session. I never got paid for this. Why do people like this record? This went on for 30 minutes, says Sal, in a post he put up. So much for fun. He said, I couldn't accept that Croz was in my store right in front of me. It was surreal. The damn mustache. Uh, then he finally came back to the counter to check out and said, why the hell don't you have my new CD in stock? <laughs> so he said, well, uh, it's just sold out. It's sold out. It was actually was in the 99 cent pin. <laughs> <laughs> And then he blew it and he said, well, it's such a pleasure to meet you. What do I charge such a legend? And he slammed the CDs down and said, just charge me what they cost so I can get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and Marcone was like, sorry. <laughs> and they left. <laughs> so David Crosby, even around fans, not always the easiest guy. God bless it. But what a voice. What a voice.
0: Well, and I am the easiest guy to be around, you know. Oh, you uh, are. Yeah, um, which is why you should subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts or Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, even though they're not paying us a hot a dime. red cent. Yeah, good grief. Apple Pod. Yeah, well, I guess is it Apple Podcasts or iTunes? I don't know. It's the, you know, we're in the Apple Music world. Uh, wherever they give podcasts away for free, you can usually find our show. And some of those places let you rate and review the show. Please do. It helps us out when you do links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website showbizsandbox.com that's where you'll find those ways to subscribe to us as well as ways to contact us dirt at showbizsandbox.com that's d-i-r-t at showbizsandbox.com you can also call and leave us a voicemail the number to call is 888-567 sand that's 888-567 seven two six three we're on twitter at showbiz sandbox is our handle there and we're on facebook facebook.com showbiz sandbox is where you can find our page and, and like our page again all that information on our website dot the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group mgmt they can be found on their own website who is mgmt.com and michael gilts is a website and every week it's something new and exciting what is it this week michael it's burnwoodtonight.blogspot.com. That's actually Sound Uh Oh, actually,
1: uh, well, you're right. You're right. Yeah, okay.
0: Well, you know, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, and I'm pretty sure you can't, uh, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs> <laughs>